at one point, my grandma was sending me 20 bucks a week. And so I was living off a bag of apples, a loaf of bread, <laughs> a jar of peanut butter, and, <laughs> and whatever leftovers were in the refrigerator from all my... Uh, Sounds like my two-year-old's diet. That's what she eats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good diet. Yeah, it's a pretty good diet. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. It's yeah. Almost all the food groups are represented. Could be worse. Yeah. yeah. Happy New Year and happy first episode of 2024. Mark Ruffalo is one of those rare actors who seems to be everywhere all at once, yet still has a vibe of just a totally normal guy off the street. His career is so sweeping, it's hard to characterize. He's done everything from indie dramedies like The Kids Are All Right to procedurals like Spotlight and Zodiac. He's played the leading man in rom-coms like 13 Going on 30, my personal favorite, and starred as the Hulk in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Over the course of this long and varied career, he's won two Emmys and has been nominated for three Oscars. And now he's playing one of his most adventurous roles yet, starring opposite Emma Stone in Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things, which is shaping up to be a major awards contender. Ruffalo's role is a departure for him. He plays a manipulative Lothario bent on taming and controlling Emma Stone's Frankenstein-esque character. I loved this conversation because Ruffalo opened up about his long years of struggling to make it as an actor and all the times he almost gave up. He unpacked how he thinks about selecting his projects and what drew him to his most recent role. And he also explained how he learned to use his celebrity to advance the causes he cares about most. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. So I want to start by asking you about growing up in Wisconsin and Virginia. Yeah. When did you first discover that acting was something you were really, really good at? <laughs> Probably after I left those places. Okay, okay. When I was a kid, I was pretty much a wrestler and a surfer and skateboard. And my senior year, I dropped out of wrestling. And my friends were like, why did you leave wrestling? I was like, well, it's just a bunch of guys rolling around. On the yeah. Car. And it was, you know, horrible and sweaty. and <laughs> Probably smelled bad, too. And I had to lose 20 pounds. And I mean, it was a great experience because I learned such discipline at such an early age. I mean, it was, it was hardcore. Yeah, it was hardcore. And yeah. I carried that throughout the rest of my life. I mean, it was an amazing way to learn discipline. And just how much reserve you have mm -hmm. outside of what your mind tells you. But I always wanted to go to the drama department and try acting. And then my senior year, I, a kid broke his arm and I ended up getting thrown into school wow. play. Wow. And I got the first laugh and I was like, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Immediately, you were just like, this is it. Yeah. And so there's a lot of kids who love to perform in high school. But how did you decide, you know what, I'm actually going to move to L.A. and pursue this for real and go to the Stella Adler Academy and actually try to give this a shot? So I was living in San Diego. We moved from Virginia Beach to San Diego the day after I graduated from high school. 
all my friends had applied to colleges and I didn't. I Mm -hmm. was a terrible student and I just didn't see a, a future for me in that world. And honestly, I didn't know what I was gonna do. I was just surfing, playing music, smoking too much weed. (laughs) (laughs) And I met somebody who said to me, you should go to the Stella Adler Conservatory in Los Angeles. And I said to my dad, I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And he said, well, what's the worst that can happen? So I don't know, I could I could die. I was like, you know, it's this big city and I was going by myself. I was 18 and I didn't have a place to live. I didn't know anybody there. I was scared. And he's like, well, (laughs) if you die, it won't matter (laughs) because you you won't even know what you missed. And so uh, I started school three days a week and the other two days and the weekends I'd work to save Mm -hmm. money. I'd make just enough money to pay for a round trip train ticket and be able to buy a large bean and cheese burrito, which I'd cut up into thirds. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And that was my life. Wow. And so in an interview with New York Magazine, you mentioned that you weren't making a living off of acting until you were 28. And you went on something like 600 auditions before you got your first break. So what was that time like for you? How did you keep going? I quit probably like five times during the course of it. You know, the one thing that I did have going for me was I was getting deeper and deeper into the theater scene in L.A. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't hear about the theater scene in L.A., but the theater scene in L.A. in the late 80s and 90s was probably the most vibrant theater scene in the United States at the time. It was very experimental. It was a lot of new material. We could throw up a play for five grand. You know, we rented our own theater. We had it for over a year. We were doing play after play after play. And so I was getting tons of experience in front of an audience. That's what was keeping me going. Hmm. Like spiritually or financially? No, financially, I was bartending. I was landscaping. I was house painting. I was totally hustling. But at that time, you know, Los Angeles also was the cheapest city you could live in. And so all I had was basically a transformed walk-in closet was my first bedroom. And it was 200 bucks. Hmm. So I'm living in LA, 200 bucks. I got a motorcycle for 250 bucks. And that's how I got around. And we lived like church mice. We were Hmm. so poor, but we were all poor together. Hmm. But it was like a magical time because Mm -hmm. we were all struggling. And LA was full of artists. I mean, it was the melting pot of the artistic world at that time. Mm -hmm. Everyone was mixing together. Musicians, writers, actors, painters, sculptors, clothing designers. We all lived together in the same neighborhood. So you mentioned you quit a couple times. (laughs) Many times. Yeah. So how did you quit and come back? And how long were you going to stick with it if it didn't work out? Well, one of the things Stella Adler told us very early on was, darling, If you could live without it, do it, because it's too goddamn heartbreaking (laughs) to do it without being able to live without it. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) I guess. Bad news for me. (laughs) I guess I'm stuck here, you know. 
but it did get serious. You know, I was like 26, 27. I hadn't paid parking tickets. And, you know, at that how, time. How many parking tickets are we talking oh, about? Oh, God, it must have been. It was like $2,000 worth of parking tickets. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> And I was driving on a suspended license because of it. <laughs> and I I became the the most the most law-abiding citizen that Los Angeles had ever seen. When you need your car and you have a suspended license, you do not break the law. Yeah. Okay. I got pulled over for a broken signal light, which oh I my had God. no idea. Oh no. And they took the car. They were supposed to take me, but I like basically did my best to act. I was like, please, I can't, <laughs> I can't. I'm so, you know. The performance of a, a lifetime. Job. I have my mom. I have, you know. <laughs> yeah, a, and the guy's like, get out of here. Wow. And so my car was impounded. I had to go to my brother for the mteenth time, my younger brother, who was mm-hmm. a really successful hairdresser. And I was like, Scotty, I'm in a bind, and he's like, what is it now? And I was like, I hit in my car. And he's like, hey, you know, maybe it's time you really start thinking about getting serious hmm. and maybe think of a different career. You know, it's obviously not really happening. So that was probably the real quitting time, mm. and I— called my dad and I said, listen, I'm going to come join the family business. Wow. And he's a contractor. Yeah. And I went out to Wisconsin. I didn't tell my mom. And my mom caught wind of this. And she called me and she said, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know, mom. I, you because know, you were giving up? I don't know if it's working out. She's like, you get back to Los Angeles or I will never speak to you again. Wow. Now, my mom, I mean, I'd never heard her like this. And it sent <laughs> a chill up my spine. Wow. And I was also like, thank God. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Thanks, mom. Dad, I talked to mom. See you later. <laughs> I'm going to have to go wow. back to L.A. So then you did have this big breakout yeah. here in 2004 with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and my personal favorite, 13 Going on 30. Yeah. Um, you had some of your first kind of mainstream breakthroughs. What was that like for you? And what do you make of this kind of like rom-com good guy image that stuck with you for these first big films of your career? Uh, well, it really started with You Can Count on Me. Yes. And... That was more of a rust about kind of character. Mm-hmm. But that came out of all my theater work. And so when people saw that, that's when all these other offers started to come. Right. And so then, you know, 13 going on 30, just like heaven, um, to some degree, eternal sunshine. And you're sort of playing this game in your career of like trying to make some space for yourself as a performer so that you're not pigeonholed because people see you do good in something and they think that's all you can do. So by the time that was really catching fire, I was starting to think, okay, what's the next move? And then I was offered a slew of romantic comedies. Mm. 
and a lot of money for them. And I was like, no, I, I want to change gears. I, mm. First of all, I'm getting bored of this. Uh, you know, I'm an ADHD casualty. I just get bored. Yeah. And then I was just like, I want to push it out, you know? And also, I had my brain tumor. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. What was that time like for you to sort of have this professional success at the same time that you were dealing with these really intense personal struggles? It was, I mean, it was terrifying. It was horrible. I had the brain tumor and I woke up and the left side of my face was totally paralyzed. I couldn't even close my eye. Wow. Yeah, I couldn't, I I had to talk out of the side of my mouth. Oh my God. uh, And nobody knew if that would resolve itself. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd just been cast in Signs with M. Night Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. It's a co-star with Mel Gibson. Huge opportunity. Huge opportunity. I was like, listen, I'll give you the performance of my life. I'll do it with a paralyzed face. I got a baby at home. I just bought a house. I can't go down. You know, I'm desperate. You have to let me play this like mm-hmm. I am. And I said, just give me a chance. But the doctor pulled me out of it. And um, eventually my face came back. And so Jane Campion cast me in In the Cut, mm-hmm. which was a whole nother different turn. I mean, you couldn't go further away from mm-hmm. a romantic comedy to that film. And um, things were starting to move again. And then Scotty died at a time when I was really feeling alienated from acting in my mm-hmm. career. Yeah. And also, your brother, who you mentioned, was murdered. How did his death change things for you? Well, I had a lot of death. Uh, my best friend had, had committed suicide. Um, so I was, I was familiar with the heaviness of that. But nothing prepares you for, you know, your little brother. And it just broke me, really. But I was in the middle of pre-production of Sympathy for Delicious. And I've always used the work as a way to heal myself. You know, the great thing about uh, being an artist, if people consider acting an art, is that you can put it into the work, you know? Yeah. It's an alchemical tool. You can Mm. turn grief into art, into something beautiful, into something meaningful. Mm. And that's what I did while I was mourning. You know, to this day, I mourn him. And it just makes you understand life in a more appreciative way. Mm. Yeah. More with Mark Ruffalo about his path to success, becoming the Hulk, and his latest film, Poor Things, when we come back. So I want to switch gears for a second um, and talk about the Hulk. Yeah. Um, Bruce. I'm, I'm in that. Yeah. I play that character. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it just so happens. Yeah. It's so funny you brought that up. Yeah. Um, so you've worn so many different hats in this industry. You've been involved in theater. You've done indies. You've done rom-coms. You've done big budget 
features. You've done everything. Um, how do you think Marvel has changed the movie industry? Oh. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, it, it really goes back to Downey. Mm-hmm. And Downey was, we came from the same world, you know? We were... You mean Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, Robert yeah. Downey Jr. And, um, you know, he was our golden star. I mean, he was the great indie actor who came from this theater background and was dynamic and naughty and, like, all of these qualities that, as a young actor, you were, like admired in him and then marvel and john favreau had this crazy idea that they would put him in a tent pole studio movie it didn't happen it never happened what do you mean like it didn't happen until they then? would never yeah they would never bring an actor like him into that role hmm it had to be a vetted studio guy. And there was a difference then, you know? Mm. You were either an indie actor or you were a studio actor. And he was not a studio actor. And he also had a complicated life. Yeah. And there's this image thing that had to go with being mm. a studio actor. And he crossed that over. And it was at the same time that indie movies were starting to transition into mainstream. And Marvel's, I, I mean, this is genius on them. They're like, why don't we use those character-driven stories with indie actors and put them in a studio hmm. tentpole movie? And that was a radical shift. And they took a gamble. What Marvel did was take these really complicated characters and put complicated actors in them and changed the whole way we looked at studio films. They made this hybrid. And that was how they changed the whole studio system. Yeah. And they took a brand that was on its way out. And then they brought Kevin Feige in. Now it's just gotten huge mm -hmm. and it's, you know, like everything, it grows and it grows and it grows and it reaches a point where it's, you know, too big to fail. Almost. Yeah. You know, it's changed it significantly that franchises, they, you know, people saw that model and they just want to duplicate it. Hmm. And they want to take old IP and they want to revive it and rebrand it. Hmm. And they want to know that whatever investments they make are going to translate immediately to people's sentimentality to the past. Hmm. And that's become sort of a, a whole business model now, yeah. as we see. I mean, you know, the biggest movie this year was uh, Barbie. You know, that's, right. that's an IP that existed. We all had a relationship to it. We have feelings towards it, either one way or the other. And they plug into that. Now we're going to see a whole other tranche of these things come out. You know, it's like everything. It, it has its positive and its negatives. Hmm. And it runs a course, you know. It has a life. Yeah. And then that life comes to an end, <laughs> like my career <laughs> did. <laughs> right. Well, so I'm, I'm glad you brought us here because, you know, once you've reached the height of this Marvel stardom and you've been a superhero, how do you decide what's next? And obviously you've done many other projects while you've been the Hulk. but Poor Things does seem to be a pivot for you. So can you tell us a little bit about 
why you decided to be in this movie and what spoke to you about it. Well, first of all, Yorgos Lanthimos is, you know, I think he's one of the great directors and he's just has this such an interesting career. He comes from the theater. So I Mm -hmm. understand like how he can move from one style to the other so easily. It's what we're trained to do. And I really admire that. And I am always just blown away by the performances that he gets from people. Mm -hmm. This movie totally flew in the face of everything. You know, any other part I've played, you know, comedy at that level, raunchiness, although I've done some raunchy stuff in the past. Working with that kind of director in this kind of a film Mm -hmm. with an ensemble like that. I've worked with great actors and great ensembles, but this has another shift to it. And uh, it pushed me way outside my comfort zone to Mm -hmm. the point where I tried to talk Yorgos out of giving me the part. Really? Yes. Wow. Why? Just because... I was so scared of it. Huh. And I was also like bought into that thing. Like, this isn't really what people expect from me. And do I want to be seen like this Mm -hmm. guy? And like deadly, deadly, deadly things to a creative person Hmm. when you start letting that lead you. That self-doubt. That self-doubt or that idea that I have to stay in my box or this is what I do. Right. This is what people expect. And you gotta fight against it. And and each time you fight against it, it's that much harder because hmm. you're that much more cemented into it, you know? Wow. With every success. So I saw this movie pretty recently, and I am still thinking about it. It's almost a kind of retelling of Frankenstein with a lot of inventive twists on that. Yeah. But some of your other films, I'm thinking specifically about spotlight or dark waters or the kids are all right you come out of the movie being like i know what this movie was about yeah this movie was about the power of journalism this movie was about like gay marriage marriage. this movie was about holding corporations to account what do you think poor things is about what are the themes that you and the rest of the artists who made this are trying to explore it's really about liberation it's about equality for Hmm. women It's this woman's story, and she's a 35-year-old woman's body with a baby's brain in it, and she's had no conditioning. And the world conditions young women and young men based on gender expectations, which run the whole gamut from how you dress to what careers you do Mm -hmm. to how you're supposed to be in the world, how you're supposed to relate to people. It is ingrained. I mean, we're loosening up now, but it's ingrained. And here you have a woman at 35 years old with none of that conditioning Mm. and all of that development to do. And she's totally free. And it's messy. It's dealing with sexuality. It's dealing in this incredibly kind of oppressive time we're living in now. Hmm. I mean, I think part of the the delight people get from it is just how naughty it is, how, you know, how raunchy, how, but, but how, you know, like that's who we are. Right. And we're not really allowed to express it anymore. Everyone's watching and you're waiting for you to make a mistake, you know? Right. And she makes every mistake she could possibly make. Right. But she gets to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the meaning of it for me. I mean, there are, are so many moments in this film that I thought were so interesting. One of them was specifically this moment where she spends a while in the film focusing on her sexual liberation, but then she realizes that there are poor people who are oppressed and all sorts of horrible situations, and everything changes for her. You have been such an outspoken activist on progressive causes, specifically environmentalism. I am curious, you know, how do you think about the power of celebrity in that context? How do you think about what you want to use your platform to talk about? Well, you can either sell watches or cars. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or you can give back to the world some of the greatness that's been given to you. Mm -hmm. Not that there's anything wrong. Either is both totally legitimate, and um, I respect both things. Um, for me, well, it started in my backyard. You know, I moved the family up to upstate New York, right in the middle of the fracking boom. You know, I mm-hmm. had little kids and the water's being contaminated. Yeah. And so I, I was living on the front lines. <laughs> it was the craziest thing. We went to Dimmick, PA, where it was like ground zero of fracking, where mm-hmm. the whole community's water was poisoned. The EPA turned their back on them. They were what we called the sacrifice zone. They were my neighbors. And they're sitting there sick. They have like files of their medical records and their kids' medical records and their mm-hmm. animals dying. All this documentation is sitting there in their laps. One guy, you know, he has oxygen because he can't breathe. And they all look at me like, what can you do? Can you help us? Mm-hmm. I was like, that is so intense. What am I going to do? And yeah. I, I couldn't sleep. I was like, Ruffalo, if you are who you say you are, you know, are you who you say you are? Yeah. And later I was on Rachel Maddow talking about their story. And that was really my my entry, my ramp into it. I mean, I'd been against the Iraq war. You know, I was marching mm-hmm. in the streets for that. But I didn't have the celebrity that I started to have when the fracking fight started. Mm-hmm. And that's when I could really use it. And I saw the power of it. Yeah. And we did ban fracking here in New York State. And we've taken those bans all over Europe now. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I did learn is I just use my celebrity. I grab the person that we need to hear from and I throw them into my spotlight. And that is a symbiotic relationship that gives them the stage and the media attention. And it gives me the credibility by giving them the voice. So we have a last segment that we do, and it's called The Last Time. So when is the last time you cooked breakfast? Um, Yesterday. What'd you make? I just made toast and some cottage cheese. Okay. I I have some questions about cottage cheese because, like, oh, my God disgusting but (laughs) it's sure it's having a resurgence okay (laughs) whatever you say but i i make my daughter pancakes too okay well that's good um when's the last time you finished a book just recently um a day in the life of abed salama um by nathan thrall Hmm. which is about basically a palestinian man trying to get his son back who was in a terrible bus accident and was taken over into the Israeli um, side of the borders and boundaries, Mm -hmm. and he can't find his son. And it's one of the most beautiful 
human accountings of what life was like for mm. Palestinian people living in Gaza and the West Bank. Um, when's the last time you went surfing? Um, summer before last in Montauk. <laughs> when's the last time you played a game? <laughs> a few days ago, one of the word games on New York Times. Um, oh, I forget what it's called. You have to... Uh, you have to come they give you a bunch of letters and you have to come up with words wordle no it's not it's um, the other one spelling yeah. bee or something yeah yeah it's spelling bee yeah which i'm a genius at wow i'm terrible Surprisingly. at that one wow <laughs> okay last one yeah when's the last time you saw live theater oh i saw danny in the deep blue sea a couple of weeks ago which is incredible it's chris abbott and uh aubrey plaza heard it's great it is so great yeah and moving and funny it's totally realized john patrick shanley wow great well listen mark we've already taken up too much of your time thank no, you I so much it. for this being exactly here with us. the kind of interview i want to do you can catch mark ruffalo starring in poor things in theaters now Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. So send your tips and thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Michael Erlinger and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.